Getting My Sweat On. Check out this review on Heart and Soil Supplements, Firestarter and Warrior. She says, I take these every morning. I used to take an L-carnitine powder every morning, and this is definitely easier and less damaging to my gut and teeth. I hated drinking 10 ounces of watermelon-flavored pre-workout at 5 a.m. anyway. The sweat I get from Firestarter is just as good as any supplement I have used. I, I love that Janice is stoked about this. Warrior is our new collaboration with George St. Pierre. It is my two favorite organs. It is heart and liver. And Firestarter is our high stearic acid tallow, which is from suet. And I was just in Ohio hanging out with my friend Roman Atwood. And I was thinking, what could we do for people who need a pre-workout? And Janice has already found a good option for this. She's, she's combining Firestarter with Warrior. I think it's a great option. But I convinced Roman to not take his pre-workout and we still had great workouts. Pre-workouts are bullshit. You know this, guys. But you can find us at heartandsoil.co if you want to reclaim your birthright to radical health. There's one other review I have to read for you guys because it is so cool. The title is AKA The Milf Maker from Teresa F. on our skin, hair, and nails. She says, thank you for helping me get another step closer to becoming a certified MILF. I'm also using Firestarter with skin, hair, and nails, and I notice I have much less junk food cravings. This is big for me because I'm a pothead as well as a parent and working professional, and the munchies are just a part of life, but I'm able to direct that hunger to protein-rich meats and organs and be totally satisfied with everything. My hormonal breakouts along my jawline are gone, sweet cravings are silenced, and I have steady energy to help me get new PRs at my CrossFit gym. I feel great. I think at Heart and Soil, we all could say that we're proud to help Janice and Teresa become MILFs. Uh, and that is a cool thing about what we're doing. I don't actually know what that acronym stands for, but you guys probably can fill in the blanks. Check us out at heartandsoil.co. That is .co. And we will help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. On this week's episode of the podcast, I do a deep dive on more lies that have been repeated time and time again that I think are causing problems for humans that are becoming pseudo fake truths because they've been repeated so many times. And these are the lies around cows causing climate change. I have struggled in the past to make this sexy. As important as it seems to be, I think it's difficult to get people interested in this topic. So I just did a really a simple Paul breakdown on this topic. It's just me talking about it. I'm gonna take you guys through all of the arguments as to why cows are not causing climate change. And I think you'll see a lot of interesting stuff in this podcast that will give you uh, a perspective on what is going on here and help you make informed decisions and also help you educate those around you because so many people are misled on this topic. Uh, with that in mind, I wanna give a shout out to my other sponsors because this podcast is free, always will be, but they make the podcast possible. We start with White Oak Pastures, the sixth generation, 120 year farm in Bluffton, Georgia that has been farmed regeneratively for 25 years. They have added a new discount that is a recurring discount for you guys who are already White Oak Pastures customers. It is Carnivore 5. You can use Carnivore 10 to get 10% off your first order if you're new to White Oak Pastures, and you should definitely check them out. If you're already ordering from White Oak Pastures, you can use Carnivore 5 to get 5% off your orders recurring from White Oak Pastures. What is White Oak Pastures? Like I said, it's a regenerative farm in Bluffton, Georgia, doing good work. This means grass feeding, grass finishing of the cattle, 
rotational grazing. The grass is green. There are birds, there are bugs, there are ecosystems. I talk about all of this in this podcast. And I actually cite data from a life cycle analysis that was done at White Oak Pastures in connection with Qantas and General Mills, showing that when you raise cows in grass feeding and grass finishing and regenerative manners, they are carbon negative. If you believe that carbon emissions into the atmosphere are something that we need to worry about, then carbon negativity is probably a good thing in your food. And guess what? The meat from white oak pastures is. No plant-based burger can claim that. And conventionally, beef, unfortunately, cannot claim that. So check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. They also have corn and soy-free chickens at our request and eggs, all kinds of good stuff. Carnivore MD will get you 10% off your first order and Carnivore 5 will get you 5% off recurring orders at whiteoakpastures.com. Got to give a shout out to my friends at Let's Get Checked. They are at try, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com. You can use the front slash MD to get 20% off your blood work. I just got back from doing my blood work at a lab, but it wasn't as convenient <laughs> as doing it in your home. And you better believe I checked my testosterone because you guys all know that testosterone levels are declining across the globe. And that is a problem for men and women both. That is causing hormonal insufficiency, erectile dysfunction, depression, sleep disturbances, cloudy thinking, brain fog. You gotta know what your levels are. Let's Get Checked is a cool sponsor because they let you do this at home. They're fast, affordable, confidential. They do male hormone test kits. They also do female hormone test kits. And like I said, they are able to be done in your home. So you go to trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd to get your labs. You can also get CRP. You can get your chemistries. You can get a CBC. You can get a lipid panel in the comfort of your own home. You get the test the next day, send it back to them. They will be reviewed in three to five days. You get results. A consultation is available for a nurse afterwards, and the results are reviewed by a physician. They are CLIA approved, which is the highest level uh, of accreditation for blood work. I did it at when I was in Austin. It was super convenient, much more convenient than what I went through this morning, uh, going to get my own blood work tested. But regardless, I will tell you guys about the results of my blood work on the podcast soon. That's trylgctrylgc.com front slash carnivore MD. Also got to give a shout out. This podcast is sponsored by my friends at shirttailcreekfarm.com. You can check them out on Instagram at shirttailcreekfarm. They are a great regenerative farm in Brenham, Texas, near uh, Austin, which is my home base when I am in the United States. It's run by Sam and Carolyn Moffat. And I say their names because I've met them in person and they are great humans. And they produce 100% grass-fed beef, pastured chicken, and pastured soy-free eggs. I challenge you to find any eggs that are more orange than those at Shirttail Creek Farm. You can get their stuff delivered to you if you live in Texas. They offer flat rate shipping within Texas and also regular order pickup locations in Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. If you're interested in filling your freezer or buying in bulk, they offer free home delivery of bulk orders over $999, including a fourth, a half, or a whole beef package in and around Austin, San Antonio, Houston, Waco, Kylene, and Bryan College Station metro areas. Again, go to shirttailcreekfarm.com for more details and check them out on Instagram at shirttailcreekfarm. Use the promo code CARNIVOREMD for $10 off your order of $100 or more. Supporting regenerative agriculture is a huge step in the right direction as I talk about on today's podcast. Last but not least, 
earthrunners.com is also a sponsor of this podcast. How cool is that? If you don't know what earthrunners are, you are missing out. In congruence with ancestral wisdom, we need to incorporate more simple nature-based lifestyle practices and outsource less of our modern life to technology. Earthrunners are the coolest sandals around. They are based on the centuries-old uh, Harache design, but they have an earthing plug made of copper and conductive laces, which keep you grounded to the earth even when you're wearing shoes. I've been traveling recently and I've understood, I've realized that it's pretty hard to be grounded when you're traveling. I'm staying in a hotel, I'm in shoes. When I go to my parents' house in the morning, I'm visiting my family, I will take my shoes off and go get in the grass to ground. But I brought my earth runners with me. So when I'm walking around also, I can just walk in the grass and knees and all of that electrical conductivity from the earth is preserved. In an aspect of modern life, we don't often think about is how our shoes affect how we interact with the earth. Our ancestors were almost always grounded. It's a pretty cool thing. So like I said, it's a millennia old design known as a Hirache, simple sole with a wrapping lace. They have Vibram sandals, and this helps you restore your natural connection to the earth via earthing. I think it will help you guys remember these things. You can get 10% off by using the code Paul at checkout at earthrunners.com. That's earthrunners.com. Use the code Paul for 10% off on your grounding sandals. All right, guys, on to the podcast. Hope you enjoy this one. Let me know what you think. If you repeat a lie enough times, it becomes the truth. I began last week's podcast with this paraphrase of Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels, the Nazi Third Reich Minister of Propaganda. And I will repeat it again at the beginning of this week's podcast, because I think it is again true for what I will be talking about this week, which is the notion that cows are causing climate change. This was a comment I received on a recent Instagram post. This was a post that I did where I was at the river by my house, and I was thinking about how we would view the natural world, how we would view food and a hierarchy of foods if we were in our quote-unquote natural state as hunter-gatherers. And the comment somebody made was, this guy is still living in 10 BC. We know now we have better sources of food that don't cause climate change like red meat. And I thought, okay, this is bullshit. This is propaganda. This is a lie that has been repeated so often, or at least an incomplete partial truth. We need to set the record straight here. But as is so often the case, this is what we hear day in and day out on the news, on websites. I'm listening to an audiobook right now. I'm listening to Project Hail Mary uh, audiobook, which is a book about a guy who goes into space. And even in that book, there are peppered little snippets of the notion that humans are causing climate change, which is a whole separate issue that I will touch on briefly at the end of this podcast. And that cows, carbon dioxide from humans is the main driver of climate change. So that is a whole separate issue. The main point of this podcast is to discuss the notion that CO2 or more specifically methane, CH4 from ruminants like cows, bison, et cetera, is a major driver or even a significant driver of human-caused climate change. There are a lot of assumptions that have to be made to even have this discussion, but I will make those assumptions. And then at the end, I will question those assumptions briefly. Before I get started into this podcast, I want to share a couple of important pieces of information, though. This is really cool. I just saw this. It came out two or three days ago from when I'm recording this. Uh, the court, the federal court, sends the EPA back to work on glyphosate cancer finding. So this is great news for those of us who are concerned about glyphosate. This is why I don't use glyphosate uh, containing honey, and I work hard to avoid that. Federal appeals court 
scrapped a 2020 EPA finding on the human health impacts of a chemical at the center of a pending Supreme Court petition on cancer risk from the popular Roundup weed killer. The opinion from the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court sends EPA back to work on its 2020 decision that glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, does not present, quote, unquote, any reasonable risk to man or the environment. So the EPA is being questioned here. And I think that the notion from 2020, the EPA said that glyphosate has no reasonable risk to man or the environment is bullshit, okay? So this is really good news for hopefully our food supply, for workers on farms, et cetera. Now, in the spirit of the notion that we are pushing back against propaganda and we are trying to be aware of places where we have been brainwashed, consider this YouTube clip. Uh, this is one of my favorites. This is Why the Majority is Always Wrong from Paul Rolkins. You can find this at the TED Talk. I'll play the first few minutes. I'm playing this at 1.5 speed because I can't listen to anything at normal speed. I think this will sound normal speed to you or at least similar to the speed of my voice. Nobody talks as slow as I hear people on YouTube talking. I can't listen to it. But anyway, listen to the first few minutes of this. I think it's pretty cool. I will screen share for those who are watching on YouTube. In 1942, Albert Einstein was teaching at Oxford University. And one day, he just gave an exam of physics to his senior class of physics students, and he was walking on the campus with his assistant, and all of a sudden, the assistant looked at Albert Einstein and said, Dr. Einstein, this exam which you just gave to the senior class of physics students, isn't that exactly the same exam you gave to exactly the same class one year ago? <laughs> yeah, 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 said Albert Einstein, it's exactly the same. But Dr. Einstein, how could you possibly do that, the assistant said. Well, said Einstein, the answers have changed. The answers have changed. In other words, what is true for 1942 is even more true for today. We live in a world where the questions might be the same, but the answers have changed. In other words, what has got you here will no longer get you there. And if you want to have results that you've never had before, well, you need to start doing things you've never done before. Now, the key question for today is, of course, is there a method to the madness? Is there a way that each of us can do impossible things to truly create dramatic results? And good news is that the answer to that question is yes. Because what I'm going to explain today is, when it comes to high performance, why the majority is always wrong and how you can use that to get everything you can out of everything you've got. But let me first introduce you to something interesting, an interesting observation. When people, teams, and organizations, whenever they hit a wall, they tend to do one of two things. They either do more of the same things, or they do less of the same things. But what you very seldom see is that they start to do different things instead. And it's interesting, if you look at the data, approximately 3% of people are inclined to even do different things. And the remaining 97% continues to smash into the wall, like some kind of crazy energy bunny on steroids. And why is that? Why is that? And to understand what's going on here, we need to ask ourselves another question. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the purpose of thinking? So this was an important point that I wanted to highlight at the beginning of this podcast as well. 97% of people, and I actually emailed Paul Rolkins, the guy that did this talk, and found the psychological research done, I believe at Yale or somewhere, that he's referring to. But when people encounter a problem, whether it's climate change or the notion of climate change, whether it's an autoimmune disease in Western medicine, whether it's the question... Uh, of cardiovascular disease and its cause, 97% of people either do more of the same thing or less of the same thing when they encounter a problem. But 3% of people, interestingly, try something different. I thought this was a great metaphor for Western medicine and the way that we approach the treatment of diseases in Western medicine. I believe that the majority of people in Western medicine, the way that we treat illness in Western medicine is to do more or less of the same thing. We either give more drugs or less drugs or we change the drugs in Western medicine we never do something different. And I think this is so fascinating and a real insight into why the majority is usually wrong. Only 3% of people 
are really programmed to be disruptors. And this can mean that we're wrong, but I would like to think that sometimes I sneak into that 3%. And maybe you do too, if you're watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, that we have to think outside the box and think of new ways to do things, which is why I'm so interested in using food as a lever to reverse chronic illness, whether it's inflammatory, autoimmune, cardiovascular, et cetera, obesity, diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction. But what stands in the way of those sort of progressions are the topic that I talked about last week on the podcast, which is the value or danger of LDL in the human body and why I don't worry about LDL in my body because I'm insulin sensitive. And then these insidious arguments that red meat is bad for the environment. When in fact, I believe red meat is the finest food for humans on the planet that we have at this moment in so many ways. And we don't have necessarily a lack of calories for humans on this planet. We have a lack of nutrients. That is a pearl that I gleaned from my conversation with Diana Rogers on a previous podcast here. You can feed the world a bunch of garbage grains and soil and green, but what we need to feed people to make healthier humans is more nutrient-rich food. You don't get nutrient-rich food from grains. We know this. If you feed people a bunch of rice or corn or millet, they get very, very sick because they are nutrient poor. They are nutrient deprived. We need to feed the developing world meat. So we need to understand how to scale that. But again, the conversation always comes back to, but we know red meat is causing climate change. That was why I wanted to talk about it in this podcast. So as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I will make two important assumptions as I begin this podcast. And then I will question those assumptions at the end of the podcast. Let's assume that climate change is happening and that human-caused carbon dioxide emissions are playing a role in that climate change for the purposes of the beginning of this discussion. And let's assume that carbon dioxide is a powerful or a, an important greenhouse grass to consider in the climate changing of the earth. This is the mainstream perspective on climate change. Human-caused CO2 emissions from a variety of sources, not just cows, industry, et cetera, electricity, most people would point to cows as a problem. Very few people understand that agriculture for plants also has a contribution to CO2, so I'll get into that in a moment. But let's assume that I'm taking the mainstream overall paradigm belief at the beginning of this podcast and saying, okay, climate change is happening. Human-caused carbon dioxide is contributing to that. And number three, or the same number two, essentially, carbon dioxide can only be contributing to that if it is actually a potent greenhouse gas that will change the temperature and the radiance of energy from the earth to outer space. So we must make those assumptions in the beginning. As I said, at the end of this podcast, I will show you something that may challenge your assumptions on those beliefs. Maybe you'll stay in the 97% who don't choose to challenge your beliefs, or maybe you'll actually think outside the box. Who knows? I'm not a physicist. And as you'll see, this thing I'm going to show you at the end is interesting physics from Max Planck and others. So we'll see what it ends up at. But at the beginning of this conversation, I want to start with those assumptions. So the party line for these people who will comment on my Instagram and say, we know that red meat is causing climate change, is essentially the notion that cows fart. Actually, it's a burp. They fart out, they burp out methane. All ruminants do. A bison does, a deer does, an antelope does. And there are many things that contribute methane to the environment in outside of, you know, between the earth and space. And that is important because methane is a greenhouse gas. Now, one thing to consider from the very beginning of this podcast is that without greenhouse gases, the surface of the earth would always be 
around the freezing temperature of water or perhaps colder. So we need some greenhouse gases. And there are multiple greenhouse gases besides methane. There's carbon dioxide, there's nitrogen. Water is a greenhouse gas, meaning it has some sort of an insulating effect. Again, at the end of this podcast, I will show you some very interesting physics that suggest that actually point to perhaps the true greenhouse gas nature of carbon dioxide. But for purposes of this current discussion, let's assume that carbon dioxide is having a significant effect and that increasing carbon dioxide levels in parts per million, which we know has been happening recently from 285 parts per million to around 415 plus parts per million over the last 50 to 60 years. That's very difficult to debate in the Earth's atmosphere. That's been happening. We can see the Keeling curve from Scripps Institute in San Diego, that that carbon dioxide has some sort of a greenhouse gas effect. So let's look at the actual amount of carbon dioxide equivalents that cows represent relative to other contributors in the United States. I think we begin the conversation with the United States, then we can expand the conversation to the world. But if we're going to say if cows are contributing to climate change, let's start at home in the United States and understand what we can control in terms of US policies. Presumably we can't control how China raises their cattle or how China controls their carbon dioxide emissions. We can't control what Greenland or Iceland or Australia or New Zealand does. Those are not even our countries. So let's start at home in the United States and understand what our actual relative contributions are from various sources. In order to do that, I will use a graphic from my book, The Carnivore Code. But as you'll see here at the bottom, this is from the US Environmental Protection Agency. You can find this. This is a 2016 report on an inventory of US greenhouse gas emissions and sinks. Uh, and you can find that all here if you don't believe the reference. So here is the relative contributions. And this is um, total US greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. Now, electricity generation responsible for 30.3% of greenhouse gas, GHG emissions. Transportation, another 26.4. Industry, 21.3. So clearly, the biggest three contributors that are anthropogenic, human-caused, because I'll show you the carbon cycle in a moment, and you'll see that the Earth is actually cycling many of these greenhouse gases. But the biggest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions in the United States were industry, electricity generation, et cetera, transportation, which probably includes cars, but also planes, and electricity generation. Massive. Add commercial and residential, and you have essentially more than 90% of US greenhouse gas emissions, and you haven't even gotten to agriculture or livestock yet. Agricultural crops. This is plant-based agriculture, which is the supposed alternative to red meat is 5.2% or was 5.2% according to this EPA report. And then livestock was 3.7%, the lowest contribution. And of that 3.7%, beef was 1.9%. Tell me again how red meat is causing climate change when there are 1.9% of US greenhouse gas emissions in, according to this EPA report. Okay. So that Nobody is debating that cows burp methane, but how much methane relative to other sources? And it should be noted that in this graphic, this methane is converted to carbon dioxide equivalents or greenhouse gas equivalents because methane eventually becomes carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But if you look at that, it's important to understand the relative contribution of ruminants in the United States from an EPA report. And it's important to understand that contribution is small relative to 
industry, electricity generation, and transportation. Okay, so if we wiped out all cattle from the planet, they would produce less greenhouse gases. Let's start in the United States, excuse me. If we wiped out all cattle from the United States, they would produce less greenhouse gases. But presumably we'd need more calories that would be nutrient poor calories to feed people. And we would have to increase the agriculture. So there is really no magical math that can happen here. You can wipe out all of these cows from the United States that will reduce this 1.9%. But presumably that's going to go over here to the agricultural crops, which also produce greenhouse gases or into these other pigs, chickens, et cetera, these other things which we're gonna feed people. So where is the magical math that these red meat haters would suggest will magically solve our climate problems? The other thing to consider is that the tilling of land reduces carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So if you are going to raise more crops in a monocrop agriculture manner, not only are you going to destroy ecosystems where those crops are grown, you are going to release more carbon dioxide from the earth into the atmosphere. So red meat causes climate change in the same way that your broccoli causes climate change. There is no way out of this. We need to feed humans, unless this person is part of an anti-human cult that believes we should all just commit ritual suicide and remove ourselves from the planet. I think there's a much better way to move forward when we look at the relative contributions of that carbon dioxide. Now, it's also important to understand that cows exist as part of what is called a carbon cycle. That carbon has been cycling over the, within the atmosphere of the earth for billions of years. So this is what you get when you search the carbon cycle. I pulled up some of the most instructive images that I think will help talk about this. So you can see here, this is the actual numbers. So the red numbers are flux and the blue numbers, I believe, are sinks, or at least this is a sink and this is a sink. So we're looking at vegetation. Vegetation stores, uh, this is in billions of metric tons, uh, 610 uh, soils, 1580. These are storage amounts of carbon dioxide. The oceans have 39,000. You can see there's a global carbon cycle. Carbon dioxide is released from the ocean. Carbon dioxide goes back into the ocean. Now, photosynthesis pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere into plants. Plants also have respiration. The soil respires and actually releases some carbon dioxide back into the soil. Land use moves 1.6 into the atmosphere and fossil fuels move 6.3. Very small amounts. I'm not saying fossil fuels are a good thing necessarily, though um, there are arguments on both sides of that. Um, fossil fuels and land use, presumably that includes cows as well, are small contributions to the greater cycle. Well, some people would say, okay, but those small contributions are causing climate change. Okay, let's go to this one, which as you can see is from NASA. Um, if you see here, there is this one here that I pulled from NASA. I think this is the best carbon cycle graphic because it's clear that the red, uh, the red numbers here are flows. This is in petagrams. So thankfully they're using metric here, which is 10 to the 15th grams of carbon. And there's a pool and there are fluxes. So the earth's crust has um, 100 million petagrams. Fossil fuels, 5,000 to 
10,000 petagrams of soils have 1,500 petagrams of carbon, meaning if you till the soils, you're releasing carbon in the atmosphere. This is the soil respiration and decomposition. That number, they say, is 58 petagrams going into the atmosphere every year relative to the burning of fossil fuels, which is 7.7. .7. Now, I don't think we should be burning particulate fossil fuels. I don't want to live in Beijing or Tokyo and breathe that air, but this is just talking about carbon dioxide. Volcanoes, a very small amount. Photosynthesis fluxing into plants. Plants storing 560 petagrams. Deforestation and land use change, 1.1 petagrams going up. Uh, and just for the record, deforestation is not caused by cows. Deforestation is generally in Central America and South America caused by farmers who use cows to clear the land that they want to plant soy on. Because if you clear the land in uh, these parts of the developing world, the land is yours. So the land is not cleared for cows. The cows are brought in to help clear the land. And then the land is used to plant soy. Ocean uptake, 92. Ocean loss, 90. The atmosphere has 750, but it's important to note there is tons of carbon everywhere and this fluxing and going all over the place. And cows exist within this cycle. Cows contribute some of this to the burping process. Methane breaking down into carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, et cetera. But cows are not the only contributor. And in the United States, cows are a fraction of the contribution. Now, I think a lot of the misconception comes from an FAO report that was done in 2007 and then redone uh, about 10 years later or nine or eight or nine years later because there was a miscalculation. This is called Livestock's Long Shadow. And the problem with this report was manifold, but one of the main problems was that while there was a life cycle calculation for the amount of carbon that a cow releases into the environment, there was no life cycle calculation for what cars do. And what was done was they compared worldwide as a percentage of anthropogenic carbon dioxide emissions, they compared the amount of carbon dioxide from a full life cycle of a cow, meaning how much it produces in methane, how much carbon dioxide is produced from all of the land, uh, all the equipment that is used to move the cows around their entire life cycle to what comes out of the tailpipe of a car. Well, we know that there's more carbon dioxide that can be attributed to a car than just what comes out of its tailpipe. Well, what about the carbon dioxide needed to make the roads that you drive the car? And what about the carbon dioxide needed to run the electricity for the plant that made the car, et cetera, et cetera. We know that electricity generation is one of the most significant contributors to carbon dioxide emissions, but that electricity generation to make the car was not accounted for in any of the life cycle analyses for cars. So the FAO was comparing apples to oranges. They were comparing a full life cycle for cattle, which we have done, and we know very clearly what cattle produce. They were comparing that to what was done just out of the tailpipe of an automobile. That doesn't sound like a fair comparison. And so they had to redo it when these oversights were pointed out. Yet, plant-based advocates will be very quick to point out that, oh, cows are a huge contributor. They contribute as much as transportation. False, false. And they contribute that methane as part of a cycle. This is not new carbon. Remember that the carbon produced from the back of an automobile is carbon that has been freed from the fossil fuels in the environment and is new carbon going into the atmosphere. Whereas the methane coming out of a, cow, out of a cow's mouth was carbohydrates in the grass and plants that the cows ate that was fixed from the environment. So every bit of methane that comes out of a cow went into the ground and into plants before it came out of a cow. It's not newly created carbon dioxide. It's carbon dioxide that is part of the carbon cycle. Tell me again how cows, 
the most nutritious foods for humans are causing climate change. I also found this very interesting data from the Northeastern Organic Farming Association. I need to confirm the actual location of this graphic, but this graphic is reflecting variations in annual changes in atmospheric methane concentrations from 1983 to 2009. Obviously, from 1983 to 2009, there are now more cows, more ruminants being farmed, but you can see here in parts per billion, the amount of methane has cycled all over the place and has actually gone down. The last recorded reading here was 2009. There was really no association between the number of cattle or cattle production and the amount of methane in the environment. So again, to suggest that cows burping are creating a significant contribution to the methane in the environment is a pretty shaky position to take, yet Bill Gates wants to do it over and over and over as if it's canon. If you repeat a lie enough times, it becomes truth. It's just, I don't understand why more people are not questioning these issues and why more people are not actually doing the research for themselves. And I cannot imagine, though I could be wrong, that the person who made that Instagram comment has actually thought about any of these issues. I would be think it's much more likely they are just regurgitating something they read on a mainstream news website or more likely watched a mainstream news website because let's be honest, how many people read today? So let's go a little deeper down the rabbit hole and consider this historical evidence. So this is historic pre-European settlement, present day contribution of wild ruminants to enteric methane emissions in the United States. This is a paper from Penn State University in 2012. And it says overall enteric carbon, uh, excuse me, overall enteric methane emissions from bison, elk, and deer in the pre-settlement period, which is uh, I believe in the late 1800s, were about 86% of the current methane emissions from farm ruminants in the United States. Wait a minute. You mean before the United States was settled, there was 86% of the same methane emissions because there were millions of bison, elk, and deer in the Western United States? That's exactly what I'm saying. And yet now the environmentalists, quote unquote, or people on Instagram are complaining that a 14% increase in overall methane emissions, 14% because of our current populations of farmed animals is the cause of climate change or a significant contribution of climate change. That I find to be extremely unlikely. And if we look at this, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 1860 was significantly lower than it is today. And yet we are expected to believe without questioning so often that the, that amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is significantly influenced by 14% more methane from cows that are being farmed today? That seems a little far-fetched to me. Let's look at this. Nutritional and greenhouse gas impacts of removing animals from U.S. agriculture. Well, yes, they say that if you remove animals from U.S. gas, U.S. agriculture, the greenhouse gas would be decreased. But... <laughs> The problem is that that would create a food supply incapable of supporting the U.S.'s population's nutritional requirements. So I can only imagine that this minuscule decrease in greenhouse gas contributions, 1.9%, is worth it to these people for complete nutritional and ecosystems collapse? How would the land regenerate without cows on it to poop and pee? 
This is what we know. If you've ever seen land that has been monocropped by plants or plant farming, it looks like scorched earth. Nothing grows there after a number of generations of this type of farming because all the nutrients have been removed. They've gone into the plants. Then we need synthetic fertilizer. Oh, wait, that's very hard to get now because of the war with Ukraine, et cetera. And synthetic fertilizer doesn't fully recreate the soil microbiome or the ecosystem's diversity. Oh yeah, we have a real problem when we don't put animals on the land. Now this actually hints at a very important next step, which is, wait a minute, there are multiple ways to raise cattle. Most of what gets vilified is feedlot agriculture for cattle. But also remember that cows only spend 15% of their life in a feedlot. They're not spending their entire life in a feedlot, even those that are, that are feedlot finished, which is something I'm not a fan of. Why feed a cow grains to fatten it up prematurely? Grains that are full of glyphosate, hopefully not as much in the future. Grains that are full of other pesticides, grains that are full of mold and mold toxins. If you heard the previous podcast I had done with Evan Brand, you will know that cattle are a contaminant. Cattle are contaminated with mycotoxins because they're fed grains that are moldy. Yet another reason that I don't eat grain-finished cattle. But what happens if you finish a cow on grass? Oh, in that case, you actually have a system in which all of the carbon of the cows goes back into the environment and the cows are carbon negative. This is the Qantas uh, General Mills and White Oak Pastures appraisal life cycle analysis of regenerative grazing at White Oak Pastures. What they found, I'll show you the summary here, is that the net total emissions for the cows raised at White Oak Pastures were negative 3.5, meaning that they sequestered, these cows sequestered more carbon into the soil than they produced. Regenerative agriculture, grass feeding and grass finishing can easily be carbon negative. And as they reflect here, a Beyond Burger is carbon positive. Soybeans are carbon positive. Pork is carbon positive. Chicken is carbon positive. Okay. Yes. If you compare this to what happens in a traditionally raised cow, they're going to be much more carbon positive than a regeneratively raised cow. But why don't we increase the amount of regenerative agriculture? Why don't we do more grass feeding and grass finishing of cattle if we're really worried about this carbon footprint of this beef and then we can feed more people incredible, nutritious food? Well, people would say, oh, you can't scale it. Well, bullshit, you definitely can scale it. So it's important to understand something called the Conservation Reserve Program, which is something I will show you guys a study of in one moment. So this is something dealing with the CRP, soil organic matter recovery in semi-arid grasslands implications for the Conservation Reserve Program. We suggest that 50 years is an adequate time for recovery of active soil organic matter and nutrient availability, but recovery of total soil organic matter pools is a much slower process Plant population dynamics may play an important role in the recovery of short grass steppe ecosystems from disturbance, such that establishment of perennial grasses determines the rate of organic matter recovery. Basically, what they're saying in this paper is that it needs 50 plus years to recover land that has been destroyed from monocrop agriculture. So the US government pays farmers. Hundreds of thousands of acres in the United States are laid fallow, which means there is nothing being grown on them and there are no animals on them because we're not hip to the fact that the animals would regenerate the land faster because we're just letting the land sit there for 50 plus years to regenerate the damage that has been done with monocrop agriculture. Well, guess what? Farms like White Oak Pastures, Rome Ranch, et cetera, that are doing regenerative can see much acceleration in that return 
the viability and fecundity of that land when you raise animals on the land. Rome Ranch is outside of Austin, Texas. I've been there a number of times. They have bison, which they took that land, which was destroyed by farming and early settlements and full of all kinds of garbage and very nutrient poor, very carbon poor in the soil. And they improved it year over year over year. I think it's about seven or eight years, maybe nine now. Every year, the amount of carbon in the soil goes up. And you can track this on farms like Rome Ranch or White Oak Pastures because they are grazing bison in a rotational manner, just like they do at White Oak. So this is a graphic from White Oak Pastures showing soil organic matter, soil carbon. And it goes from, over the course of 20 years, it goes from 1% carbon or 1% organic matter to 5% organic matter in the soil. And you better believe that organic matter of 5% in the soil looks like coffee grounds compared to neighboring farms, which look like really weak chocolate milk. And as you've heard me say in the past, for every 1% of organic matter in the soil, it can hold one inch of rain in a catastrophic rain event, meaning that the flooding and the erosion will be much lower. That land at White Oak Pastures or at Rome Ranch can hold three, four, five inches of huge rain before the topsoil gets run off into ecosystems and estuaries. Well, what if your land only has 1% organic matter or less like most monocrop farms do that are growing plants? Like most people who are saying red meat causes climate change would want you to grow one inch of rain in a serious rain event and that soil is off, that topsoil is gone. It's in an estuary choking and destroying that ecosystem. It's completely a no brainer. So what I'm saying with regard to the conservation reserve program is if we took all the land that the US government is paying farmers to leave fallow and put cattle on it, we would have much more land to raise regeneratively. People often say you can't scale regenerative, you can't scale grass-fed, bullshit. It's totally scalable, especially if you use the hundreds of thousands of acres in the conservation reserve program. And what we know about regenerative agriculture is when land gets more organic matter in it, you grow more food. You can put more cattle per square foot onto that land. There are multiple calculations that have been done to show this, like this calculation, looking at how much land, how much increase in land we would need to do 100% grass finishing. They uh, estimate a 31% increase um, if we were going to go to 100% grass finishing. Well, a lot of that 31% could come from the conservation reserve land and the land that we have being used for cattle now will become more productive if we do grass finishing and grass feeding. And if we did that, we could take all the cows off feedlots and all the land that is used for feedlots could become regenerated as well. There's plenty of land in the United States to do all grass finishing. This is a consumer-driven process. Consumers don't understand the importance of it, but it is possible in the United States. As I said earlier in this podcast, it's basically impossible to tell other countries what to do with their land. But in the United States, at least, I believe we have enough land to do regenerative grazing, grass finishing of all cattle. And that would sequester more carbon into the soil than the cows produce. But as I tried to illustrate in this podcast, the amount of carbon that even non-grass finished cows put into the environment is negligible. It's very small. It's part of a carbon cycle. It doesn't represent new carbon like emissions from transportation, electricity, et cetera do. And it allows us to make the most nutritious food for humans on the planet. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. So the notion that red meat, the cows are causing climate change is incredibly misinformed. Incredibly. And again, that whole discussion leveraged on two assumptions that I want to actually call into question now. But before I do that, I want to show one more study that corroborates what I was saying about ruminants reducing the carbon footprint, the role of ruminants in reducing agriculture's carbon footprint in North America. Basically, they say here that we conclude that to ensure 
long-term sustainability, and ecological resilience of agroecosystems, agricultural production should be guided by policies and regenerative management protocols that include ruminant grazing. Putting cows on the land creates good food and makes the land resilient because it creates resilient agroecosystems. Collectively, conservation agriculture supports ecologically healthy, resilient agroecosystems and simultaneously mitigates large quantities of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. That's essentially a fancy way of saying that cows support ecosystems on the land by creating a dynamic grassland ecosystem, which is where ruminants belong and have been for millions of years of their evolution. And it essentially eliminates anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions from the cattle, which is negligible in the first place. Many of you have asked me to do shorter podcasts, so I'm trying to do summaries. I want to share with you a few minutes of this YouTube video, which really struck me. I'm going to challenge your belief that carbon dioxide is an important greenhouse gas. With the caveat that I'm not a physicist, though I did do a lot of physics and a lot of this type of math, even quantum mechanics, when I was in my pre-med education at William & Mary. However, beyond college, I have no training in physics, so I can only assume that these equations discussed in this video are correct, but the historical references to Max Planck and Carl Schwarzschild do seem to be fairly accurate to me. So I will show this video and you guys can decide what you think. If anyone out there is a physicist and can debate or debunk these equations, then please share that information with me because this blew my mind. Please, uh, now, this is perhaps the most important transparency I'm going to show you in this talk. Uh, and it's worth taking a little time to talk about it. Uh, on the right of the transparency are two very eminent physicists. Uh, on the top is Max Planck. And Max Planck discovered quantum mechanics, trying to figure out how it is that radiation works. So, uh, why does the wavelength distribution of radiation look the way it does? He know, knew the way it looked by the time he started his work, by the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, and in solving that problem, seemingly intractable problem, it, it had all sorts of paradoxes in classical physics. He invented quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics came from solving the radiation transfer problem. It didn't come from particle accelerators or from radioactivity. It came from thermal radiation. And below is Carl Schwarzschild, who uh, was a little bit younger than Max Planck and uh, tragically died during World War I uh, on the Russian front, not from Russian bullets, but from a horrible autoimmune disease, which got worse uh, while he was in the service and eventually killed him. But uh, turning now from these personalities to the picture, the uh, smooth envelope curve, uh, blue curve on my uh, chart here, is Planck's radiation curve. So that's the prediction of how much Earth would radiate to space if there were no greenhouse gases. And uh, the area under that curve, as it's pointed out on the graph, is uh, 394 watts per square meter. That's the radiation pouring out into cold space. And uh, if you look from satellites, that is not what you observe. You do not observe Planck's curve when you look down on the Earth. Instead, what you see is the black jagged curve below with all sorts of wiggles in it. And I'll call that the Schwarzschild curve. And for Carl Schwarzschild, who was the first to show how to calculate that curve, how to model it. He got it absolutely right. He was an amazing guy. God knows what he would have done if he had survived. But he was the first to write down, for example, an analytic solution to Einstein's uh, general relativ relativity equations. Uh, absolutely astonishing. So uh, according to Schwarzschild, you get this jagged black curve. So the area under the jagged black curve is the radiation the Earth really radiates to space. Uh, it's 277 watts per square meter compared to almost 400 if there were no greenhouse gases. So there's a substantial uh, decrease in the cooling of the Earth due to greenhouse gases. And thank God for that. That's what keeps us warm enough to live on Earth. But the, the 
important thing about this is that in addition to the black curve, which is the real radiation from the Earth today, and uh, if you look at a satellite picture of this, you can hardly tell the difference between this is actually a model, but you, the, the experimental data looks the same. If you double the CO2 concentrations, you go from the black curve to the red curve. And if you look at the red curve, it hardly differs from the black curve. It's only in the CO2 band where there's a slight difference. And just about everywhere else, it's all the same. And so going from current CO2, a little bit over 400 parts per million to double that, a little over 800 parts per million, takes you from the black curve to the brief to the red curve and decreases the cooling radiation by 274 minus, into minus uh, 277, three watts per square meter. So think about that. The, the, we are talking about uh, giving up our freedoms, giving up our liberty, giving up meat, you know, every pursuit of happiness you can imagine because of the difference between the black and the red curve on this graph. And I, supposedly this causes a climate emergency. Does this look like an emergency to you? No, it's not an emergency. And if you put in more quantitative details, you know, it's very hard to see how any rational person, you know, with any gray matter left could uh, consider this to be an, a climate emergency. I should mention this is a presentation from Dr. William Happer. He's a president emeritus of Princeton University. Uh, so that is who is giving the presentation, which you can find on YouTube. The title is CO2 is not a pollutant, exposing the fraud behind global reset and the Green New Deal. Now, be that as it were, for the title, I thought that was a very striking piece of physics that actually increasing carbon dioxide levels from 400 to 800 parts per million really doesn't have any significant change in the greenhouse effect of carbon dioxide. And you can see that in the irradiance, the amount of heat leaving the earth is three watts per square meter less, 277 to 274. That's a very small amount if we increase that amount of carbon dioxide. Is that even something that is worth changing the amount of meat that we eat for? I would say absolutely not. And like not even close to that when we think about the impacts of other things like the nutritional considerations with red meat. The other thing to consider about carbon dioxide is this. Carbon dioxide helps plants grow. The earth is greener today than it has been in the past. I know this has been repeated many times. This is an experiment showing that an ambient, which during the time of this experiment, which looks to have been in the 1980s based on this gentleman's attire, um, was 385 parts per million CO2. He then increased the amount of CO2 growing this uh, little Christmas tree thing, 150 plus, 300 plus, 450 plus. And you can see the tree is the greatest height at 835 parts per million carbon dioxide, which isn't surprising when you look at the glacial data for what we consider to be the Earth's atmosphere over the last uh, billions of years, which looks like this, or this is going back. 570 million years before present, to the Cambrian, to the Silurian, to the Devonian. And you can see the blue line is temperature, the purple line is carbon dioxide. And there is really not always a strong correlation. You can see during the Permian, the Triassic, and the Jurassic periods, uh, temperature was high, but carbon dioxide was lower. But carbon dioxide having been as high as 6,000 parts per million uh, at times, and now carbon dioxide being much lower than it has been in any significant amount of time. You can look back uh, five, three to five million years ago. Since then, carbon dioxide, which much higher, above 2,000 parts per million, et cetera. People would say, oh yeah, humans weren't around then. I get it, but humans can definitely live in 1,200 parts per million carbon dioxide or uh, something thereabouts. That's what's in most greenhouses because as you saw, that's what causes plants to grow in the highest uh, manner because plants love carbon dioxide. I'm not saying we should put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or that we really want our atmosphere to have that much carbon dioxide, just that 
there is a lot of room to go in the carbon dioxide and that we're looking at a methane contribution from cows, which is minuscule. <laughs> Uh, do we really think that's the problem here? Now, this gets into broader discussions of overall climate change and whether anthropogenic climate change is a problem. The caveat for all of this is I'm not an environmental scientist. I've done a lot of thinking about this, but again, my knowledge is limited. I just wanted to share with you, the guys, those other things which have caused me to question the original assumptions from the get-go, but the majority of this podcast accepted those assumptions. That is the mainstream perspective, though, as we saw from the beginning, a lot of times the majority is always wrong. I would love for a physicist to help me understand why uh, Carl Schwarzschild's equations are not valid for carbon dioxide and show me actual real data that illustrates strong properties of carbon dioxide as a real greenhouse gas, because that data seems to suggest otherwise. Nevertheless, what we walk away from this podcast with, what I walk away from this podcast with, hopefully it's imparted some knowledge to you, is the notion that ruminants are part of a carbon cycle, this being cows, bison, elk, deer, et cetera. They've been in the United States. They've been in Northern America for hundreds of years. They've been in North America for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, probably. And 86% of the methane from these cattle was probably there in our pre-settlement populations of elk, deer, bison, et cetera. We have a very small increase, 14% increase in methane with livestock populations that feed our populations that help us become healthy. We know there are better ways to raise cattle support regenerative agriculture with your dollars and with educational materials, educate yourself, educate other people. The next time you see someone say red meat is causing climate change, ask them why they think that and understand that there's a lot to question with regard to this issue. It's very complex, but I think the notion that cows are a significant contributor to climate change is absolutely absurd. But if you repeat a lie enough times, it becomes the truth. That's why I do the work I do, trying to help people understand what is lie and what is truth. None of us will ever know for sure. I will certainly make mistakes, but as far as I can tell, the notion that red meat contributes to climate change is a lie. It's certainly been repeated a lot of times. Let's prevent it from becoming truth. Thanks for listening to this podcast, guys. Hope it was helpful. Until next time.